another exciting episode of the Masters Muscle Podcast. Let me just say, Vin, we're almost all in the same age bracket, and growing up, our guest was my voice of bodybuilding. But without any further ado, please introduce the man of the hour. Yes, absolutely. Um, so Tom Terwilliger uh, was the voice of Muscle Sport USA, and he did all the shows. And you know, back that back then, we didn't have the social media platforms we have today. And the shows would come on, uh, was it monthly or weekly? I can't remember. But, um, and his, uh, his voice stood out and it, it was just, uh, I, you know, you couldn't wait to hear Tom's voice because he knew he was going to have a good show and uh, feature all the shows. Um, you know, Tom, before we get into it a little bit, I just want to say that we're going back to, I think it was 87 or 88. Um, I don't remember what gym it was in. I don't know if it was in New Jersey or it was in New York. And you were one of the first people I saw had a picture in a frame on a wall at a gym. And I remember, I don't remember every detail of it, but I remember talking to the gym owner and he was telling us Tom Terwilliger, he's a light heavyweight. Um, and he's a former teen competitor. He did the teen colonial America. And he won the Junior USA. And that was the moment I knew I want to do that. And I went into the Colonial America myself. Uh, I took uh, second place in, in the lightweight class. And uh, I ended up winning the Junior USA. So we have that little connection you didn't know about. Wow. And the last time you and I spoke <laughs> was on stage at either a Jersey show. We were sitting on a, we were just, you and I were just talking bullshit. And you were telling me how revved up you were to train for, um, I think it was the Night of the Champions. How you know that was the that was the goal and 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 everything. So, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on, everyone. Tom Twilliger. Awesome. Well, number one, let me say I'm honored to be here, Sean. You know, Vinny. I mean, you guys. I'm a big fan of the show. You guys are rocking it already, which I think is so fantastic. And it's just like it's like Vinny. I'm like. You've been entering these master's divisions competitions, gaining all this press, gaining all this admiration and coverage, and boom, you come out with a podcast. It is brilliant marketing. Oh. <laughs> Fantastic. And I'm thrilled to death to be part of it. And uh, and and I, I just want to thank everyone who's who's tuned in, who's watching, and I appreciate it. I hope I can share some, some words of wisdom. If not, you know, at least a couple, like Vinny and I were doing on stage that time, just bullshit. <laughs> yep, yep. So bullshitting so around, me, man. How did you get into competing? How did that transition you into Muscle Sport USA? And then we'll go into what you're doing today. Yeah, it was interesting because I had started competing, of course, around the whole metropolitan area. And I was I was competing as a teenager in New York, some teenage shows actually in New Jersey, the Colonial America. Uh, I'm trying to remember which other ones I did. Uh, the, 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 there was a metropolitan, teenage metropolitan that I won as a teenager. Um, which was a big show. Everyone, it was like the Metropolitan, New York Metropolitan Championship as yep. a teenager, particularly as as uh, an open class winner. Guys like Chris Dickerson, Dennis Torino, Tennis Tenorino, a whole bunch of guys that were really went on to win, win Mr. Universe and Mr. America won that competition. So winning it as a teenager against the likes, I might add, of John Defendez, who is now Mr. USA, won the USA several years ago. Uh, you can't miss John Defenders on social media. He's, he's, he's just about all over the place, right? And, uh, and I still love the guy. We're dear friends today. But I started as a teenager um, 
really it was interesting because i had a lot of challenges like when i was growing up i'm an identical twin and uh growing up i was uh dyslexic hyperactive uh add as they would uh, define it today and put into the special ed class in fourth grade so that's sort of like created this stigma in my own mind it was in many respects and i, and I remember the the the, the the actual moment being put into special class separated from my friends right up to the fourth grade so the fifth grade began that special ed education thing you know arriving to school in the little yellow bus leaving in the little yellow bus um was was somewhat traumatic but I, I specifically remember like my best friend she was a girl tall red-headed girl um diane and i remember we used to play records those little 45s you know jeremiah was a bullfrog all these old old you know old songs right all the, the bubblegum music of the 60s and we would go on her deck and we would play that music and i remember one day i was approaching her house after i'd been put in the special ed class and she came running out she says i'm not playing with you anymore you're a retard go away oh jeez that was traumatic and it was it immediately you know, created this neural pathway that I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm stupid, all this stuff um, that I had to wrestle with for many, many years going past that. So for me, the way I wrestled with that was um, becoming, because it was, you can imagine, you know, in the special ed class, and it was truly, uh, whether I belonged there or not, um, um, there, were, there were several individuals that truly had special, um, uh, defects and or learning disabilities and challenges that they were working with. So you can imagine there was no shortage of bullies right. when you're in the special ed class, no shortage. So uh, my brother and I were going through the same experience, exact same experience, different classes, both special ed. And we became what was called the bully killers. And we, you know, because we had already, I mean, even at, at eight years old, I started ch studying Chinese Kung Fu with Grandmaster Alan Lee. And I had been doing that for a couple of years already and continued that right into the teen years. Um, so we were pretty good at Kung Fu. I mean, nobody did Kung Fu in fifth grade, you know what I mean? like, except, except maybe Bruce Lee and a few others, you know? So it was, it was easy to be the bully killer and, and to take these, these bullies out and teach them a lesson, you know? So that was all very negative programming. The only thing that was really positive was my, my, my family life. I had great parents. I had older brothers and sisters um, and the Kung Fu studies. But then I remember in junior high school, and this was after I'd been already in so much trouble. I was constantly with the, the law and the authorities in school, constantly in trouble. A friend of mine came to my locker uh, one time, come running up. I see bolting up. This is a kid I was playing lacrosse with. And, um, and he said, check this out, check this out. And he opens and he shows me the cover of Muscle Builder magazine, which today is Muscle and Fitness, right? Remember that? Muscle Builder. Yeah. And on the cover was this guy. And he's doing curls. He got this thing called it was the arm blaster. If you remember the arm blaster, it was like you put lock your arms in. And he's doing curls and the big split in his teeth. I had no idea who this guy was. And I'm flipping through the pages. I'm like, oh my god. So I'm looking at these black and white pictures of Frank Zane and Franco Columba, and of course it was Arnold Schwarzenegger on the cover. And that lit the fire almost immediately. That was it for me. I was completely magnetized to bodybuilding. I stopped playing lacrosse. I joined a local gym, which was okay, but then it wasn't long before I discovered a real gym not mm. far from my neighborhood. So that's kind of how it started. It was like, it was rough beginnings, and I needed something to latch on that was positive, that would have a, a positive influence on my, my psyche, my emotions, and my physiology as much as anything else. And 
and bodybuilding was the beginning of that for sure. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so did you have a mentor, a coach, if you will, or how did you get directed into what contest was going to be your first show? And that's probably one of the best questions you could ask, because I think that's so important for anyone listening. I don't care if you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, or if you're a teenager just getting started, having and finding a mentor in anything that you want to excel in is, is exceedingly important. It's just, it's vital really in terms of shortcutting it. Cause you're going to run into so many stumbling blocks, so many landmines that it could wind up being frustrating, discouraging. You're not making progress and you wind up quitting. So having a mentor who's been there, done that and can kind of not necessarily hold your hand through the process, but guide you through the process is so important. So with that long winded introduction, there was Tony Pandolfo and oh, Tony okay. Pandolfo, when I said I, I belonged to some gym, it was called Iron Masters. It was by my, it was by my, my high school. And it was, it was okay. It was decent equipment. It had a couple of universal machines and some barbells, some dumbbells. And it was all the kids trained there, you know? And then I'd gotten wind. I'd, got, I'd heard about this other gym that was several miles away in Amityville. And, um, and they were like, oh, this place, man, future man gym. You've got to check this out. It's like, this is where all the top guys in, in New York train. All the top bodybuilders are down there. But don't even go. Don't even think about it because they will eat you up and spit you out. I was like, holy crap. They had me scared, excuse my language, shitless to even go to this place. So I did. I rode my bicycle down. I guess I was about 15 at the time. I ride my bicycle down there and it was freezing cold. It was probably in February. And there's steam on the wind. I'm trying to rub the steam off. Little do I know. The steam's on the inside, dummy. <laughs> it's not coming off. I can't look in. You know? I'm like trying to look in. So finally, I had to find the courage to walk through the door. And as I walk through the door, the first thing that hits me, and, and, and you guys might remember this, Vinny, you're a little younger, but you might remember some of those old school in Jersey. There was Diamond Gym. There was, there was uh, Strong and Shapely. There were several gyms that had that old school flair. And this one was completely old school bodybuilding. And the first thing you smell when you went in was this like blend, this uh, aromatic of punch in the face, wet, vomit. And Ben Gay. It was like that. Con imagine why mixing that up, and then it would wake you up if you were unconscious. But it almost knocked me out. It was like hit me in the face. I was like, holy crap! So then I finally, I find the courage to kind of walk through the place, and there was uh, Mr. America, Steve Mahalik, being oh, yeah. photographed. Yeah, Steve Mahalik, legendary at the time. You know, unfortunately, he's he's gone to rest as well. But Steve was doing squats. And Steve dressed, by the way, and you remember some of the old school uh, outfits, right? Like, like Robbie Robinson in Venice Beach, California. He always had the, like, the tattered corn, looked like it never been washed, tank top, holes, holes everywhere, sweat stained. I mean, just a mess. And the big baggy sweatpants with the brown stained butt belt cinched and tight. It looked like Sinbad. It was like Sinbad. It was like the waist was like this, you know? And here he is, and he's over there squatting. For me, I, like, I, I couldn't believe, I saw it in the magazines, but I couldn't believe a human being could look like this. I was like, whole, it, it just blew me away, right? But that was also the time when I met my mentor. Because at the time, the gym, Future Man, was owned by a gentleman named Tony Pandolfo. And Tony Pandolfo couldn't have been maybe 5'5", five, five, every bit as wide as he was tall. And um, he owned the club. So he introduced himself. He was very nice. He showed me around. And it wasn't like the kids said. They didn't want to eat me up and spit me out. He welcomed me. I guess, you know, when you own a gym, you welcome anyone who can pay. 
course. Even if he looks like a punk ass kid, you want to get rid of in a couple of months, you know? So Tony really kind of, once I joined and I had to ride my bicycle there every day, that was part of the workout. It was about 10 miles away. And, um, but Tony took me under his wing when he saw like you guys, I'm sure once you see someone, even me, I see someone in the gym who I see frequently, they're pretty serious. They're really making an effort, but they're making a couple of mistakes here and there. I won't necessarily take them under the wing because that takes a tremendous amount of time and energy, but I will help them a little bit, like correct them. Hey, do you mind some feedback? That's what Tony started doing, but he saw that I was serious. I was there every day. And like every teenager today, I didn't want to rest. I had to train seven days a week. Sure. And so, I get, sure. so yeah, all right. So Tony's like, what are you doing, kid? I said, I'm training. I'm training. He goes, you've been here for the last 14 days in a row. He goes, get your ass out of here, man. You got to. And then he started mentoring me. And Tony became, you know, a tremendous because he was also a champion bodybuilder himself. Been there, done that. And one of the things I loved about Tony as a mentor, too, he, he was smart. He was ethical. He steered me away from any kind of chemical use at that time. I'm a teenager. He knew this would not be good for me. So he steered me away from that and got me on nutrition and got me on the proper training, plenty of rest. But one of the things I also loved about Tony is he never looked like a gym rat, never, unless he was training. That guy was in, he looked like he was going to the disco every time he was working in the gym. You know, the, the perfectly pressed slacks. You know, remember the high-waisted 70s disco slacks? Oh, yeah. Like the satin shirt, wide lapel, button down to here with his pecs hanging out. I mean, the guy always looked impeccable. He was, he, and it was just like, it was a good, he was a fantastic mentor. Couldn't have, and it just led me right down the right path, man. Great question. Very cool, so, very cool. Tom, when you when you were growing up, what were you lean and lanky? Were you kind of built or like playing lacrosse? What was your physique like before you started lifting? Skinny. I was I was as skinny as you can imagine. I in fact, a funny story around that. And after I had an article written in Muscle and Fitness magazine called Chicken Legs, um, about my about my leg training, I was like, damn, I even mentioned her name. So there was a girl in junior high school named Miranda that I had a tremendous crush on, right? And and in, in high school back then, you know, there was like one big gym room and the girls were on one side and the boys were on the other. And back then, of course, you had those, you know, I, they had these like little skimpy, baggy gray shorts that had whatever school name written on it. And the baggy, yep. you know, the t-shirt, the gray, it was all gray. Everything was gray. And we had those, you know, little Converse sneakers, if you were lucky to be able to afford the Converse sneakers. And my legs were so skinny. I remember specifically, I had a crush on her and she, and she's like waving me over. She's with her girlfriend and they're all giggling, you know? And this is, she, man, this is fifth grade. And, and she's flagging me over, flagging me over. Um, and, and I get close enough and she starts pointing. She says, I see, I told you, you had chicken legs. I was wow. like, another, another blow at that time. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Tom, please tell me your high school years were better than your elementary years. Uh, high school was was a, was a challenge. It really was. Yeah, yeah. It was. Um, uh, again, I was in a lot of trouble. I I managed to work my way out of the special ed class, right back into the normal class, right back into trouble. I was still a bully killer, and uh, still in all sorts of trouble. Uh, my martial arts, I never really embraced the Kung Fu philosophy, which is much more passive and Buddhist in, in its style. I was always more aggressive, which didn't serve me at all. But in high school, um, in, as, a, as a sophomore, 
I got my first Harley Davidson motorcycle. It was a chopper. It was a 1958 panhead, rigid frame chopper, big ape hangers, no brake on the front. It was a, it was a badass little scooter, you know, and nobody, nobody had Harley Davidson chopper in high school. So there's nobody to ride with. Right. So I, so I started hanging out with a whole new, I started riding around Manhattan, just looking for, it was fun riding around Manhattan because you could hear the echo and the reverb of the loud straight pipe ball bouncing off the buildings. It was loud as hell, probably waking everybody up. And then I came across a bar in Manhattan that uh, had about 10, 12, 15 bikes in front of it. Some badass looking choppers. So I went in. Here I am. I'm I'm 17 years old, you know. So I go into this place. And and that's where I met and started hanging out with um probably <laughs> as I look back, certainly the most of the wrong crowd. I mean, these were authentic outlaw bikers for the next for that. So I dropped out of bodybuilding around that time. I had just won the Metropolitan, the Suburban, and a couple other big shows as a teenage, teenage USA. Um and dropped out to ride my bike. But here's the reason I really dropped out. It had nothing to do with the bike. The bike was a catalyst, you might say. Um, and this goes to the psyche. And this is the stuff that I write about and, and I, I like embrace today in terms of coaching people is getting past those early traumas and the beliefs that we develop about, about ourselves because we can make progress. I was making progress. I, was, I started seeing little pictures of myself in Iron Man. Remember old Iron Man magazine? Mm -hmm. I started seeing little pictures of my, oh my God, there I am from the colonial American. It was like a big deal. If you had a little picture of yourself in a magazine, it was like a huge deal, you know, as a, as a teenager. And um, so I was starting to develop this new belief that, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm not stupid. Maybe I'm not a one percenter. Maybe I'm not like, a maybe I can be normal. Maybe I can be a champion. Maybe I can be good. Right. And then something came along that just cut, gave kibosh that. It was like, no, that's not who you are. You're this guy. Remember? You're the guy who fights all the time. You're the guy who does this. You're the guy who can't read. You're the guy who blah, blah, blah. Whatever that belief system was, it interrupted whatever was starting to happen as a result of winning bodybuilding championships and taking a much better, more positive direction in my life. It suddenly, as I got that Harley Davidson, that all suddenly came crashing in. And the old belief system, reestablished itself so i started at 17 to about 22 23 i was riding with these outlaw bikers i never joined the club you know but i was i was riding as a ride along with one of the most notorious outlaw bike clubs probably in the world at that time yeah so uh, oh. do you think that when you had success you subconsciously sabotaged your success absolutely no question in fact i sabotaged it before it could, it could like, like, I, like, I didn't get on stage with this mindset. I'm not a champion. And as a result, came in last. I won some contests. And then it was like it, the wrestling started, unconscious wrestling going on, you know? And the stronger of the two, which had been established for years, got hold. And that's what led me down that negative path. So, yeah, I, I definitely sabotaged what was happening. I sabotaged the momentum. I never had this experience on last place because I just screwed it up, you know, or I couldn't get in shape because my mind wouldn't let me. Uh, but I completely sabotaged the path that I was on. Dropped out of the gym, uh, went back a little bit here and there, kept myself in good, good shape just so I could fight good, you know. And um, 
and but that was it for for the next uh, four to five years or so and and no bodybuilding nothing that was it that was what, my lifestyle what snapped you out of it I hate to make it sound cliche but a woman that's okay. <laughs> all right it's all right I, and it could you know it could have been could have been a guy could have been could have been anybody it was it was someone out of the blue who saw something more who believed in me above and beyond because i was really my bro both my brother and i were really on this bad path we were really we had our own crew we were breaking all sorts of laws we were involved in all sorts of crap but one of the two things that that snapped me out of it one was um i began at that time like the wrestling that happened earlier i also began wrestling and vacillating with maybe this isn't for me the whole biker lifestyle at least on that level um isn't what i anticipate i thought hey here's a brotherhood here's guys just like me that i can relate to and they can relate to me we connect we're comrades right yep. and really what it is at that level is organized crime at its at its nth degree and organized in every way shape or form guns drugs prostitution strip clubs all of it right and even though I wasn't involved directly in any of that, I had my own thing going on that because once you, when you start hanging out with or spending time with, I mean, as they say, we become sort of uh, a lot like the top five people that we hang out with, that we, we associate with, right? So I was the top five people I was hanging out with were outlaw bikers. So my moral compass began to decay rapidly. So I was doing things that I would never have done. So the thing that started helping wrestle with my mind wrestling was that I was brought up as a Catholic in a very religious home. My parents believed in me. They gave me good foundation. They gave me some spiritual belief systems that when I started seeing things happening within that, within that lifestyle, that was completely counter to this. It was like, I couldn't shut it out. I couldn't block it out anymore. I couldn't ignore it anymore. I couldn't let it infect me anymore. I think if I had, I would have really gone this down this path and probably be in jail or dead by now. Um, so I started wrestling with that. And then at that time, and you know what they say, you know, when, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, it wasn't a teacher, but it was someone who believed in me, a, a young woman. Her name was Noelle. And Noelle believed in me. And she showed up. And she was smart. She was pretty. She was educated. She was going to college. None of my friends were going to college. Nobody. I was like, college? What? You want to do college, boy, right? Uh, smack him in the head. You know, so great gal, and she believed in me. And that belief helped escalate me along with the wrestling with the morality of what type of lifestyle I was living. And so as a result, I just said, you know what? I think I'm going to get back in the gym. I started working out a little bit. I was still riding. I was still, it was almost like I was trying to be a bodybuilder again, but still being, like I was a bodybuilder during the week and a biker on the weekends, you know? Didn't make for very good workouts on a Monday. I can tell you that. <laughs> like every Monday, I'm like, why am I exhausted? Forget it. I can't do squats. Forget about it. So to a long story short, ultimately, um, there was a catalyst. There was an event that forced me to, uh, to make up my mind, to get off the pot and the shit. It was like, it's, it's like, it's time. It was time. And I remember I was in the clubhouse um, at the the biker clubhouse and this was just an old warehouse with a rickety old bar made out of plywood and a bunch of crap and um and and i'd looking in the mirror which was all dirty and broken 
and I'm looking at myself, I'm looking around all these bikers. I'm like, is this what I become? Is this what I'm like 23 years old? I look like I'm 40. I'm a mess. It's just, it's just disgusting. And I'm looking at all these other guys and I'm walking around with canes and just like the beard, lights hanging out of their beard. Just like, it was, it was like at that moment, I was like, what the hell? And I kid you not, guys. And again, and maybe it's, I, to this day, I don't know if it was my own unconscious mind or my guardian angel or God, something whispered in my ear and said, you're done. Walk away. You're done. Walk away. And the second time I heard, I was confused. I looked around. I thought somebody was actually whispering in my ear. Okay. And so I looked around and I heard it again. And it was convincing because I was already there. I was already on that fence. I already been vacillating with this get up, get out, you're done. And so I did. I started walking towards the door and something happened that completely solidified the decision to walk away and never go back was there was a shotgun, a a short little Remington thawed off shotgun, double barrel behind the bar, cocked, ready to go at a moment's notice, just in case somebody raided us or something. And somebody must have banged up against that bar. And because it was old, old and rickety, the thing popped off its perch behind the bar, hit the ground, both barrels went off in the exact spot that I had been standing not 10 seconds before, just as I was opening the door, just as I was opening the door walkout. Unfortunately, a very dear friend of mine, uh, his, his wife got caught with some of the shells, but she survived it. She made it out, but it was, it was the whole place erupted. And I walked out that door and I never looked back, never looked back. That was it. That was the catalyst. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. So you decided to turn back to bodybuilding. And obviously. I turned back. And really, because, you know, it was like I was already kind of like delving in a little bit. Like I said, during the week, on the weekends, I was a biker. During the week, I was working out, training. So I didn't mind my body go completely to pot. But I'd been stabbed. I'd been drinking. I'd been doing all sorts of drugs, cocaine, you name it. And um, so the first place was to really get back there, find Tony re-establish a relationship with Tony Pandolfo, re-establish a relationship with Future Man Jim, which I was ashamed to go to. I wouldn't, I wasn't, during that biker period, I wasn't going to Future Man. I let, in my mind, I let everybody down. I was becoming a champion and now I'm garbage. Now I let myself go, I'm done. So I didn't go there. I just went to some other gym. So it was getting back into humbling myself and saying, hey, you know what? You got to suck it up. You got to, you got to get back into good graces of Tony. You got to get back into Future Man Jim. And start that process again. Thank God I had that, to be honest with you. Because bodybuilding, along with the belief of this one particular person and several other people, including my parents, that was my savior. I like to say I found God as a result of that, but I think I always had God in my mind and in my heart. So I can't say I found God, but I found some salvation in bodybuilding. And it took off pretty quickly from there. Now, when you went back... um did Tony break your balls for a little while? Did he give you? Did he give you a hard time? It did. You know, it's like the those those. It. Yeah, I had to earn it, man. You know those those coaches back then. They didn't give you much leeway. Bodybuilding coaches like Tony, like Tony, like um, Vince Gironda, like uh, Mahalik. They were kind of like you. You if you're if you're you're in, you're in. If you're not in, don't even. Fr- and and I wasn't in at that moment. I had to re- almost like when I first started training uh, as a teenager there, I had to earn my stripes. I had to prove to Tony, I'm here every day. I'm serious. I'm eating better. I'm going for it, man. 
and then he started to notice but yeah he didn't completely shun me by any by any means but he was like okay i've seen this happen before you're back you'll be gone again tomorrow you know mm -hmm. so he wasn't willing to say okay let's get back to the drawing board let's get to work we're gonna make you mr america that's in there there was none of that for a while no it took it took a bit to get back into it man into his good graces you might say okay cool i mean yeah because like today you can't you can't do that like, i i try to break balls a little bit to some guys and it's a different mindset today and but i you know that's what i experienced and i understand what you went through and a lot of yeah. a lot of what you're talking about um resonates a lot with me personally um so i really appreciate your story and being so mm. yeah pretty you cool. know i think i think i think there's a few bodybuilders that have found their saving grace through bodybuilding you know and, and and i think it's one of the things that make us champions in many respects because we it wasn't easy it wasn't handed to us we weren't necessarily gifted with the best genetics in the world and or lack of any struggle i think the struggle is what makes us stronger right it's right. resistance it's 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 the perturbation as it's called the perturbation of tons and tons and layers and layers of earth and rock is what creates a diamond out of coal so if we don't have perturbation we will never gain the internal moral uh physical strength to be able to become any sort of champion in the sport so i can totally understand not knowing your story sure. i can totally resonate that that you have a story so behind that that's made you a champion sean and i were talking before we, we came, before you got on and uh, we were talking i read your bio and uh it was like and i i joked at first and said my dyslexia kicked in and said don't even read this <laughs> so he thought i was joking i'm like no i really am i'm dyslexic and i too you know i didn't have to go on a, a yellow bus but i was in a special special needs class and i was bullied and um, um i had some i had some horrific things done to me uh, mm. where, where i got beat up and um you know so i can relate a lot to your story my my high school wouldn't even allow me back in after an event where a kid uh took a pipe to my face broke my nose broke my jaw broke my collarbone um and it, it was, wouldn't allow it was you back in what did you do to this kid nothing <laughs> i know i they they were more scared of him if they didn't allow ah. him back in. so i was the easy target and i had to have um tutor come to my house and Yep, I, I didn't yep. I didn't experience graduation. I didn't experience my prom. Um, and, you know, I, I joke with a lot of people that, um, yeah, I went to uh, and I did. This is this is the truth. I went to like 11 proms with other girls and they're like, no, but nobody knew my story because I didn't go to my own prom. And I think I was trying right. to fulfill some something that was missing. And sure. same thing. I, you know, I got into competing, I think, because. I was trying to fill that gap, that void. Mm, the way mm. you're talking, man, it's like wow. It's like you're talking to me right now. It's like yeah, I mean that it, it's it's so uh, it's interesting because you know I do a lot of speaking, a lot of motivational stuff, but also uh, personal development training, um, corporations and stuff like that. And it's just like it, my story is like ninety nine percent of the people in the audience don't have a story like mine but they relate to it in some way they had their own struggle they had their own trauma i'm finding as i work with people with trauma 
that 90% of us had something we coded as trauma. It may not be, you know, uh, childhood abuse. It may not be whatever we think of as trauma, but it could be anything. It's my best friend calling me retard saying, I reject you. I didn't want Mm -hmm. you. That's coded as trauma, you know? So I think a lot of people do. And it's interesting, Vinny, because I, same thing, man. You know, that, I mean, you, you can imagine as junior in high school with a Harley Davidson, I finally got into a fight with a gym teacher, beat the guy up, and they're like, Mr. Twilliger, what are we going to do with that? I said, I'm going to make it easy. I quit. So I left. But I did the same thing. I went to, I went to like three or four different proms oh. with different girls. <laughs> I, I, not, not only did I go to 11 proms, but I actually went to eleven schools. I went to three high schools. And the first high school I went to, they actually closed down. And I got in on an art scholarship. And then um, the second high school, I, um, this kid, my, and my uncle pulled me aside and he said, do not cause a problem for your mother and father. Do not fight. I was like, okay, I won't fight. And this one kid would flick me in the back of my ear every day, every day, every day. And um, uh, until one day I couldn't take it anymore. And I yeah. took a history book to his head <laughs> repeatedly. Jeez. And turns out that his father was the the high school was St. Alice High School in Jersey City. And the first two floors were uh, up to eighth grade. And then the second two floors was high school. And I didn't know that his father was uh, Mr. Wilkins, was the gym teacher and history teacher at grammar school. And he comes up and blasts me in the face. We start fighting. So I can totally relate to you. Gym teacher. Another fight with a gym. What yeah. the hell? We're gonna have to we're gonna have to put a survey out to bodybuilders. Raise your hand if you've ever beat up a gym teacher. <laughs> you know, it's so funny though, because I mean, think about it. you think we would relate to gym teachers a little bit. We spend the rest of our lives in the gym. Yeah. Well, but gym teachers just, yeah, yeah, but were no, different. I had just taken a history book to his son's head. So he 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 had one up on me. He just came in and sucker punched me. And I remember yep. my I think my sisters are listening right now because they watch all the podcasts. And I remember coming it was chaos the whole school erupted right and i come out and you know my sister charlotte is like what's going on and she sees my face i'm a little bloody <laughs> yeah it was a mess I, I unbelievable to my parents that you're talking oh. about <laughs> oh my poor together. parents I, I i'm gonna tell you man you know between they had they had my parents were 40 in their late 40s 46 47 years old when they had twins, they'd already had four oh, kids. Wow. And every one of them were hellions, you know? My older brother, forget it, became a cop. He's a police officer, or was. My sister, I mean, they, they were all hellions. And then, just as I think my dad is, like, ready to say, and I had already thought of it, oh, that's enough. He has twins. Jeez. And, uh, and, they, and, and, and so, so I think we got away with a lot of stuff because of that, because they'd already had enough. They, by the time we were five years old, they were 50. And 50 wow. back then is different than 50 today. Yeah. I mean, 50 back then is was kind of old, you know? <laughs> it was like, you didn't want to have twins, five-year-old twins at 50 back then, you know? Um, so we got all, we got away with a lot of stuff as a result of that, man. A I lot. Say, wait, yeah. My sisters are 17, 14, and 11 years older than me, and my parents were almost 40 when they had me. So I, right. I think ah. their stories are very close. Stories are so yeah. My sisters are all older than me. I've got one that's now you know in their late seventies, and then all the way down. My the youngest one is twelve or fourteen years older than me. So very much the same story, man. Funny, isn't that funny. crazy? 
Yeah. That's great. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah, that's funny. And um, and it's funny because earlier when I was saying, well, you know, I wanted to do these shows that Tom Terwilliger did, and I never knew, like, years later. I remember when you and I met for the, the first time we were on stage at a show, and I couldn't believe this is like a normal dude. He's talking to me. He's a god to me. I see him in the magazines, and he's on, you know, all these shows, and, and I'm like, Tom's talking to me, and I, I couldn't believe, like, yeah, Vin, I can't wait to go to Night of Champions, and I'm like, he just said my name. I remember that, like, it was yesterday. I go, this guy knows my fucking name. <laughs> wow, man. No, I remember you. You were, you were, you were one of those guys that were up and coming, man. In fact, I think, didn't we, we must have covered one of your events. You did, yeah. I on did, muscle, um, muscle Sport USA. I won the overall at the Suburban. Mm -hmm. No, we covered the, we always covered the Suburban. Yeah. Yeah. And I trained a lot um, with Steve Stone. Mm -hmm. you know, so Steve, Steve was a, Steve was a, a mentor, if you will. Um, very logical guy. Oh, and a yeah. good sense of humor. Yep. And um, I, I, I love, you know, yeah. Steve was one of the guys who taught me about um, hard leg training. Mm. And, you know, I've watched Steve squat like, you know, five or six plates. And I'm like, how's he doing this? I can't do that. And, um, you know, Steve was a, a good guy. And I had the misfortune of training with Steve a few times. And, it was like, <laughs> hey, always out. and one time I had discovered a, a new routine called hundreds, right? I don't know if you ever did hundreds yeah. or hundreds. Yeah. Wait, and, that, and wait, wait, so, before, you go, before you go any further, wasn't that the guy from California who was doing 100 reps? Um, yeah, there was a couple of guys that were doing it, but I remember being introduced to through Mahalik was Mahalik was volume. They would do a hundred sets. Him and John Defendez would do a hundred sets for like back or even biceps. Legs, easily a hundred sets. I mean, it would be three hours of leg training. It was it was crazy. I don't know how I don't know how John still a dear friend. I don't know how John uh, put I did it. I just don't know. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't have done it, you know. But the hundreds were, you know, you would do a hundred reps, pick up weight that you could do comfortably do 20 with you know what i mean squatting let's just say 225 right and uh and 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 100 reps you're gonna get 100 reps with it you know and it just it was it was brutal so that when uh when i trained with steve the last time i trained legs with steve he wanted to go heavy because i've trained heavy with him before and it was always brutal and i i have small joints i'm not a heavy guy my heaviest bench was two above 405 heaviest squat was 500 but those were like anomalies that wasn't the weight i was training with you know and steve was freaking strong and every time i trained with him he wanted to train heavy so i'm like hey steve hold on hold on let's do something else i've just discovered some new routine i think you're gonna love it right he freaking hated it because he was so conditioned to doing low reps heavy weight doing 100 reps finally got the bastard but i got to <laughs> you son of a bitch <laughs> now now tom let's let's just educate the audience a little bit on on who he was and yeah you know, because a lot of people don't know who he was. Um, Steve Stone, many years competing, um, and he became the expediter at all of the yes. shows. Yes, and, yeah, and yeah, he was. at the Mr. Yeah. And he was, uh, he won, <clears throat> I think he won the light heavyweight division at either the juniors or the USA one year. He never turned pro. But he was good. And I remember he was on the cover of a magazine. He was dating a gal, too. Uh, I did a cover with her on Muscular, Muscular, Muscular Development magazine. His his girlfriend at the time uh, was Sharon Marvel. 
Sharon Marvel. That's right. And him and him and wow. uh, and Sharon dated for quite a while. They were they were an item, you know, and uh, and they were both great bodybuilders. And I had never met Steve. And I remember when when the TV show Muscle Sport USA <clears throat> was picked up by Fox Sports. Now we were on Madison Square Garden Network for for the first six years or something of the show. And it was really, it was different then. It was different. It was like we had a special guest on. We had Dr. Robert Goldman, who was one of the top doctors. I mean, the guy is amazing, right? We had a whole bunch of, and different, it was a different format. And then when Fox Sports picked up Muscle Sport USA, which was fantastic that Fox Sports Net would, would pick us up, uh, it changed. I had to start wearing the blue blazer and the tie yep. and, you know, the whole mic with the Fox Sports. And it was, and it was really competition coverage because that's what Fox Sports was doing. It was competition coverage. So we had to have a color man. I was like the anchor. We had to have a color guy, right? And so um, Paul Goldberg, who was one of the producers, said, we've got a guy. Love you to meet him. I think he'd be a good balance. And I'd never met Steve, but he, you know, Paul was bragging. He won this contest and that contest. And he flew, he, he not flew out, he drove out from where he was living. I think it was upstate New York, White Plains or something, to Long Island, to my gym. I had a gym called Maximum Health and Fitness in Long Island. I had two of those. And, um, and he came out. And I got to be, I, I'm going to be honest with you. Here I was, I was like, I, I had already won the Nationals. But I was nervous to meet this guy. I was like, he's got a great reputation. He's good looking. He's like, he's going to steal a lot of limelight from me, man. This guy's good. And I loved him right out of the gate. I loved the guy. And we just had such a great balance between the two of us. He was great color. I was more of an anchor. And, uh, and it really, it worked out fantastic. So Steve was the perfect balance there. Blonde, great looking guy. Um, and one of the things that I loved the most about Steve, that he was about my height, maybe even a little shorter. You know, guys that were six five, I would have been like, no, "We're not hiring a guy that's six five. They ain't happening. I ain't doing this up here." <laughs> so you can see the ego. The ego was firmly intact at that time. You know, um, and Steve, and again, just for the, your audience, <clears throat> Steve was indeed uh, a quick story about Steve. Um, we were at some show in Jersey, might have been a national championship or something. And I remember we had to be we had to be on camera, right during the intermission. It was like and we had to like hustle back, and we're hustling back, hustling back. The intermission just started. We're not there, and it was like, oh my god, everybody loved Steve. They knew who I was, but they loved Steve, and it was just like everybody was stopping, and he would stop and give advice say hello he was the most generous guy with with his time as anyone i've ever known so it took i mean ultimately we were late to get on cameras and we got in a little trouble um but it was it was always hell getting through an audience with steve because of that reason and and like you said Vinny, he was truly he was one of the best expediters because he respected but he had a firm hand on expediting competitors backstage even at the olympia he could get some people in the lineup Let's go. We got to get going. There's a time. There's a clock, right? He would get them moving, get them going, and help people out. He'd even put oil on people and help them out. And ultimately, I mean, he loved that. He loved doing that. And ultimately. Yeah, I know. Wow. You guys were asking earlier, so he actually won the 1990 North American Championships, took first place as a light heavy. North American. That was it. Yep. Yep. And he, 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 he died backstage. He had a congenital heart issue and literally putting oil on a competitor helping a competitor backstage at the olympia wow. he died on the spot i 
Wow, that was years ago, and I still yeah, man, I miss that guy. I miss him. God rest his soul. Yeah, so, so that Tom, was Steve. He was a character. So let's 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 get back to you here for a minute. So you won the nine the ninety eighty six nationals in a stacked class. So I see Mike Ashley, Aaron Baker. Um, you win that. Did you walk into that thinking you had it, or were you kind of questioning your placements a little bit? Well, as soon as I saw Mike Ashley backstage, I didn't think I had it. I was like, oh, man. Because I knew Mike from Long Island. I knew how good he was. And I knew he had exactly what I didn't have, abs. Mike Ashley had some of the best abs in bodybuilding at the time. And I had crap abs. I was as lean as anyone, but I never had good genetic. I never had. I could never. I couldn't hold my own with these new physique competitors because they all got these incredible abs, right? Um, it's like a must. If you don't have them, don't even get on stage. And I knew he had those abs, but he was also arms, back. His back was amazing. Um, but I had the momentum. I had I had taken two years before, I guess it was in 84, I had taken third. That was a surprise. Because I got on that stage, I was, I, I had gone down to New Orleans. It was in New Orleans, my first nationals. And I'd gone down there to prep with a couple of guys. My training partner back in New York had taken the light heavyweight division at the USA one year. And he had these two guys that were, that were uh, medical students at Tulane University down in, in New Orleans. And, and they were going to get me dry. They were going to get me ready. So I flew down a week before. And I'll be honest with you, I was ready to win the show the day I got to New Orleans. I was dry. I was lean. I was 196 pounds. By the time they got done with me, I dropped down to 186 pounds and, and I couldn't even open the day of the show. I couldn't even open my hand. I was cramping so bad. I was like, oh my God. In the audience, the outside, it was an outside bandstand looking over the, 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 the uh, stadium and hot. So I'm already dehydrated. I don't want anything to do with these guys. They're over there. I don't, just don't even sit with me. I, I really felt like they screwed me up. Now I'm no victim. I allowed it to happen, you know, but I didn't want any part of these guys after that. And um, so I had nobody there with me to help me. So I stand up. They call light heavyweights backstage. I stand up and my right quad cramps. I bend the leg, the hamstring cramped really bad. Then the other leg cramped. I went tumbling down six flights of stairs. Oh, right? With my bag. I'm like tumbling down and every body part is just cramping up. So these guys were good enough to come running over, like four of them. They came running over, picked me up, carried me backstage. So I'm, I'm being carried. I see J.J. You know, um, Marsh. I see Rich Gasparri. I see these guys. And they're pumping up and getting oiled. And I'm getting carried backstage. I'm like freaking out here. And so, so the guy's massaging my leg. And he's like, and all of a sudden it locks up again. He's like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. So I grab him by the shirt. I go, I go, did you see that beer and hot dog stand out there? I said, go get me a beer and a hot dog. So he runs out to get the beer, the hot dog. He comes back. He hands me the bun. I'm like, where's the hot dog? He's like, I threw it out. You don't want a hot dog. It's too much sodium. I'm like, I need that hot dog. So I pounded. I get it out of the trash. I pound the hot dog. I drink the beer. It was just enough to get me up. I walked out on stage, no oil. I mean, it was the lineup was ready to go. That was it. I had to get in line. So I got online. So taking third in that contest was, and I could hardly throw, I mean, everything I threw was cramp. I couldn't hold anything more than just a second or so. So taking third in that, that first nationals under those circumstances was a shocker. But okay. 
it, it's one of those things where once you take third, and you know this, Vinny, you know this, guys, that once you take something like a third, now, now you're in it to win it. Now it's like, I got to, I got to win this thing now. I got a taste of it. I got a taste of what it's like to be in that top, that top five, and I'm going to win it next time. <clears throat> so the next year, 85, um, was also interesting. It wasn't, it wasn't that bad because I'd gotten it under control. I knew my body. I knew what it needed to do to get dry. And I felt like I was good and ready to go. But then in steps Phil Williams. And Phil Williams was, ugh, the guy was, he had a back. He had some, a back that was just unbelievable. Do you know Phil? You know who Phil Williams is, don't you? I never met him, but I, I know. I know uh, yeah, I Phil know was me. great. He, like me, he didn't really make a big mark as a pro, um, but he was really good. And it was interesting, Vinny, and you'll get a kick out of this because during the prejudging, right? I mean, we're both ready. I'm glancing over at him. He's glancing over at me. We didn't really know each other at all. But but so the prejudging, the light heavies come out. They call me and Phil. Boom, whatever our numbers were, number 14, number 24. We come out alone, the two of us. That like never happens. There's always a five or six guys, right? And yeah. they're gonna compare them all. They had us run through our mandatories and our quarter turns. Nobody else out there. They put us back and never again hold us back out, ever. It was like, so we knew it was one and two. It was one and two. And I didn't know which way it was going to go. Mm. And um, so I was prepared. I had this posing routine. I kind of got known for the posing routines. And th so I had one that was really dramatic. And I think it might put me over the top, you know, because I knew he was good. I knew it was going to be tight. And uh, I'll never forget it because I, I, I remember Moses Maldonado at all. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, Moses Moses won the light heavyweight division like in 83, I think. And then went to the world championship and lost to a German. Came back and competed in the nationals again. He wanted to win the nationals again to be able to qualify for the world championship again, to win that and turn pro. It was a mistake for him to come back. So the year that I took third, he took fourth. The year that I took second to Phil Williams, he took third. He was right behind me. I think he took third. Might have been Aaron Baker. But anyway, Moses comes up to me, and I barely knew Moses because we were both New Yorkers. And I was always rooting for Moses. I loved his physique. I thought he was great. I always cheered for him, always. And he comes up to me and messed with my head. It was like the end of the – I was like, we're ready, almost ready to go back out. The finals, he comes up to me. He says, man, you, you looked really good today. It was so close between you and Phil. He goes – Unfortunately, and this is before I go out for the final polls, right? He goes, unfortunately, I was talking to the judges. You lost by one point. Oh, I was so, I was practically livid. I'm like, you just <laughs> robbed me of an opportunity. It doesn't mean I would have won. I still would have lost. But I would have I, I went out there with a, just a little bit more fight in me. You know what I mean? Right. It was just like, you don't do that. You just, it just that, that wasn't good sportsmanship at all. So I wound up taking second to Phil by one point, which was pretty cool, you know? And then the next year, so I had the momentum going into 86. And, but then again, I saw, when I saw Mike Ashley, and, and Mike Ashley was good friends with Tony Pandolfo, my mentor, who I happened to train with for that last Nationals. Because, and again, I, you, I don't want us to go long, and I, get, I know I tend to get long-winded, but but that remember that demon I wrestled with as a teenager when I was a bodybuilder and then became a biker? That demon showed up again. And after taking third and second with that momentum going into the nationals, the demon showed up. 
and said, that's not who you are. I mean, he kept ringing my bell and whispering in my ear. That's not who you are. That's not who you are. You can't do that. You're not going to win this thing. Why don't you just quit? Why don't you just give up? I get it. That's not who you are. You're this guy. I had a new girlfriend. We were partying and hanging out. And it was just, I couldn't get, I couldn't get my head into it. I couldn't get my head into it. So I called Tony Pandolfo out of the blue. I hadn't seen him in a year or so. I said, Tony, you know what I'm up against? I said, I took, I took third. I took second. The momentum's but I can't get my head into it, man. I said, I'm really struggling. He didn't say anything. He just said, be in the gym 6 a.m. tomorrow morning, and we'll go from there. And he beat the crap out of me, man. And that was it. I trained with him for the next 12, uh, I guess it was about 12 weeks or so. We trained together for that contest. And he never won. He was good friends with Mike Ashley. He never once mentioned that Mike was going to be in the show. And then I see Mike weighing in. I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> I thought I had this wrapped up. Now Mike Ashley shows up. Like, oh, God. <laughs> so I wound up winning against Mike anyway. But like you said, it was a pretty stacked. Aaron Baker was great. J.J. Marsh, Mr. USA, he ultimately turned pro. I think all those, I think that whole lineup turned pro within a year or two. So yeah, I was very, those, I was, those guys were amazing. Yeah. Even I still consider myself fortunate. I consider myself fortunate to have beaten Mike on that day. I really do. Yeah. I think the momentum helped, quite frankly. But then again, I look at the pictures. Mike's symmetry wasn't that great. His lines weren't terrific. He had great muscularity, but but he was lacking a couple of things. But I still think on you any given that, day, he, he could have beat me. You had that um, natural X-frame, though. You know, you had that, that X-frame, shoulders, waist, flaring yeah. bars, your diamond calves. That definitely helped because I was not the biggest guy. I mean, I think I won the nat the, the nat light heavyweight nationals at 188 pounds. I gave away like 10 pounds. I could have been 10 pounds. I always struggled to put a lot of weight and a lot of muscle on, you know, so I had to be refined. But okay. it wasn't enough. Once I turned pro, it, it wasn't enough. It was enough to win the national, but it wasn't. My best showing at, at a pro level qualified me two years in a row or one year after. Um, was the Niagara Pro Championship um, that qualified? I took third in that against Sonny Schmidt. Remember Sonny Schmidt? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. official. Oh yep. man, that guy was that guy was thick. And Albert Beckles, Albert Beckles won. Sonny was second. I was third. And to compete, I got to be honest with you, man. Again, you talk about like this is Tom Willinger. He's talking to me. It was like Albert Beckles. I'm competing against Albert Beckles. <laughs> it was like. Yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, my God, this is amazing, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's just like, holy crap. And I wound up beating Albert at one of the Night of the Champions. I competed in, like, three of those. Never did really well. Tenth, seventh, sixth. But I beat him one year, and I was like, oh, my God, I beat Albert Beckles. That was enough for me. And Unfor didn't, Unfortunately, that was enough for me. <laughs> didn't um, Sonny Schmidt end up winning one of the Masters Olympia? He did. I think he did. 94, right? 93, yeah. I think you're right, Ben. Yeah. Oh my God! I've got funny stories about about Sonny Schmidt. After Olympia, one of the Olympias, we got to be good friends. Me, Milo Sharchev, and yeah. Sonny kind of hung out. We were like the the three Stooges, you might say. You know, we we always hung out on the Grand Prix. The seven contests on this Grand Prix tour after the Mister Olympia, and uh, and you're on a bus ninety percent of the time. There's contests on Wednesdays, you know, because you had to do these contests. They did a contest not on a weekend. It was like on a Wednesday and then a Saturday and then a Monday. It was crazy. And um, so we were hanging out. And Sonny, and again, man, how many times do I have to say God rest his soul? You know, because Sonny's gone too. He, he passed away. 
Um, right out, it was like Sonny was taken second to Vince Taylor every contest, like the first four contests. Vince, Sonny, Vince, Sonny, Vince, Sonny, right? And then we got to Spain. Something happened in Spain, and I think it had something to do with scoring something from a dealer of some kind that you would put in a pipe and smoke. Sonny got a Sonny got a hold of some of this stuff. And that was it, man. That was it. I remember we had to get on a bus, and there's like 20 of us, right? We gotta get on this bus and organizing 20 bodybuilders. Can't even imagine what Wayne D'Amelio was up against doing all this, right? I mean, it's just a mess. And we couldn't find Sonny. He's like, he's got to get on the bus. We got to go. We're on a deadline. So nobody could find him. So Milos and I, Milos and I um, went looking for him. We went into the men's room. And we see these plumes of smoke coming out from over the stall. We're like, oh, my God. We opened the stall. And there's Sonny smoking a pipe of hash. And I was like, that was it. He went from second to fourth to fifth to seventh. <laughs> they kept dropping in every contest, man. Oh my but God. It, he was a great guy, and uh, and and just I'll never forget him. I love that guy, man. Yeah, it's a great story. He's great. Yeah, <laughs> I hope he doesn't mind. I hope he doesn't mind. He's probably laughing. He's probably wishing he was able to do it again. Yeah. So then it was funny too because he was Samoan, and you could hardly understand what he was saying. What what would always come out? I mean, he'd be like, "Fucking, fucking." It was like all you could understand was the word "fucking." I'm like. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. So, Tom, t tell us a little bit um, about what you're doing today, uh, your website, and um, you were saying a little earlier before about um, what you do and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm working. I, I, I coach. I don't personal train anymore, but I do a lot of coaching, mostly in the area of mindset. I work with entrepreneurs. I work with I have a few that I work with that are trauma victims. I mean, true, like some serious trauma that I work with. Uh, and all of this, everything I do in the realm of mindset, success, and achievement training, has it, it centers around our physiology. That's And for me, that's the most important thing. I won't work with someone if they're not ready to or willing to engage and create rapport, I call it, with their body. Because a lot of times they don't. And trauma victims, pers uh, uh, for example, are very disconnected from their body. The vagus nerve that attaches the gut and the heart runs up into the larynx and the ears, has, sends messages to the brain. And if you're not connected, that vagus nerve turns off and you're always in a state of fight or flight. You're always in the sympathetic nervous system. So we've got to get back into the body, reconnect with it, and reestablish rapport with the vagus nerve and the rest of the body. So that's the kind of work I do. And I work with executives and, and entrepreneurs quite a bit. Um, so, and I'm also working these days. My wife is a ep epigenetic coach. So she does a lot in the nutrition, uh, peptides, and, and all these different hormone areas and does blood work and blood tests and stuff. So we have a, we have a site now that's, and it has nothing to do with entrepreneurial coaching, but it has something more with the anti-aging approach that we're, we're taking with a lot of our clients. Because a lot of our clients are older. They're in there like like us. They're in their 40s, 50s, even their 60s. I'm 64 now. And and so I relate to that. I'm more in tune with that. So we work with them and we've got it. This guy, I mean, if 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 you're listening and you and you want to like kind of 
find out what's going on, why your energy level isn't where it should be, why you're feeling lethargic, why are you starting to feel old, why you I hear yourself saying, ah, I must be getting old or getting old sucks. If you're saying any of those things, you need to start working on this right away. So you can go to a website we have, and it's a, it's a quiz that you take. It's very quick, very easy. It only takes about two minutes to go through this quiz called the Vitality Score. You can go to vitalityscore.com, and that's going to run you through these questions that will already start the wheels turning. Ah, I didn't think of that. Ah, that's interesting. Why would they ask that question? And then we do at the end of it, we give you your number one energy blocker along with a whole bunch of other suggestions. We can work together from there, but that's of tremendous value. So if you're listening and you want to go there, vitalityscore.com, or you go to my website, maxmindset, maxmindset.com. And we got a lot of stuff there as well. And what's your social media platforms on Facebook? Uh, mostly Facebook. Facebook. It's just Tom Terwilliger. That's it. Yep. And there's a couple of them, but you'll know. You know, I'm not the I'm not the Tom Terwilliger with the big white beard. He's a friend. Of, he's a friend of mine. He's a police officer. Used to be anyway. And and we've connected. He's a great friend because of the name we connected. You know. Um, but he's got this big white beard, man. You never know it. He's only in his forties, but. So I'm not that guy. I'm not that Tom Twitter. But I'd love for you to connect and say hello and ask any questions you want. But you've certainly got some great mentors here with Sean and with Vinny. I mean, this is it's got to be in other today, notwithstanding, this has to be a tremendously informative podcast. <laughs> this is great. Today, today this is, is the exception. Today is the exception. <laughs> Don't judge the podcast based on this performance. No, this has been great. This has been awesome. <laughs> There'll awesome. be a part two. Yeah. All right, all right. <laughs> so, Sean, th- um, Sean, that's Tom. <laughs> you got me all rattled up. Um, thank you so much for your time, and um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug real quick before we get going? Um, well, the Vitality Score. I would l- definitely encourage you to do that. And the other thing I would encourage you to do, the uh, without plugging anything, is. Think of yourself as a mentor as well. There's someone out there that could use your support, your smile. You know, over this course of COVID and the shutdowns and all the stuff that we've experienced over these last couple of years, there's been so much mental illness as a result of this. And you can help with that just with a smile, just with a handshake, just with a greeting. And and in the gym, be as friendly as possible. I know some of these gyms, there's so many teenagers in there right now. It can make me angry. It's like, you're on the machine. I want to get on the machine. But I'm so grateful they're there working on their bodies and supporting their minds in the gym environment, man, it couldn't be any better. So do what you can folks to stay calm, to stay cool, to relax, breathe, greet others, and know that you have the power. You have the power to change somebody else's life as well as yours. So that was to be the one thing, just reach out to anyone you can try not to get angry, forget the road rage crap. They're having a worse day than you are. So let them go and let it go. Tom, Thank you so much. Love your story. Love your message. And we appreciate you. Thank you so much. for You too. Sean, Vinny, I love you guys. God bless. God bless everybody watching and uh, get out there and, and, and be high achievers. We all have it in us, man. Tom, absolute pleasure because you made my day back in the day watching the muscle sport. And for everybody watching and listening, thank you so much. Next Wednesday, making his very first podcast debut, which is surprising, Chris Faldo from Hawaii. And also, hopefully early next week, we'll be doing a roundtable when the Masters Olympia list will be announced. And uh, knock on wood, Vinny will be the first topic on there. Everyone have a great yeah. night. But I will I'll, be be praying, I'll be praying that you're in that, man. I'd love to see you in that. I can't imagine you're not going to be. So. Thank you. Well, crossing my fingers.
You got it, guys. God bless. Be safe. Thank you, everybody.